0: you're listening to so what has changed a mitzi jane media production here we explore local perspectives on a global shift by talking to people from different walks of life to help us better understand the future of business as we know it here's your host Mitzi Aker hello this is Mitzi Aker welcome to the podcast so what has changed where we Talk to people and get a local perspective on a global paradigm shift. Today, our guest is Jason Stinson. Jason has been a lifelong friend of mine and he is in commercial real estate. And so, welcome to the show, Jason. We're glad you're here.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So, Jason, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I graduated high school at Gaston High School. I went to Jacksonville State University and got an undergraduate degree in management and a master's degree in business. And then I went and got my real estate salespersons and later a broker's license through the Alabama Real Estate Commission. And then I went further and got a CCIM designation through the National Association of Realtors, which stands for Certified Commercial Investment Member, but it's basically a commercial real estate. Ph.D. equivalent, there's really not one, but that's about the closest thing there is. And I've been an entrepreneur. I've never worked for anybody but my dad and a fireworks stand when I was 13 years old and younger. I started in the retail fireworks business and had some seasonal trailers that would open up at grocery stores and shopping centers. And I did that for about 10 years and did real well with it. And the money I made, I would buy single-family homes, which I would rent out to people and sort of did that a while. And then I sold the fireworks company, decided to get into the commercial real estate brokerage and development business. And so my first project was a Dollar General I developed. That was in Gadsden, Alabama, where Mitzi and I grew up at. Since then, we own about 40 commercial properties now, mostly leased to national tenants. And we manage those and lease those and handle the tenant relations and so forth in my office. I do consulting on tax credits for high net worth people that Typically, make a million dollars or more of income a year. Been doing that for about 11 years, also. And that business has has grown every year, been blessed and done well with that.
0: So, Jason, you started your own fireworks stand. And how old were you when you started that stand and really first started negotiating your own commercial real estate deals?
1: I was 15 years old when I started the fireworks store, and I started buying residential real estate, I guess, in 1991, single-family home. And then I later, in 1998, built a Dollar General, which was my first commercial property to own. Well, actually, my office building was the first property to own, and I leased it to a law firm. That was in 1997, I believe.
0: Okay, Jason, let's jump in because you know a lot about commercial real estate. You have an extensive background. We won't say our age, but you have over 30 years of experience plus in commercial real estate. So what has changed over the past year and a half since COVID has come on the scene? You've seen a great evolution. So where are we now and what have you seen that has changed the most in commercial real estate?
1: Well, here are some trends that we're seeing. Uh, some are good and some are bad. We're seeing, generally speaking, that the industrial real estate sector, which means industrial buildings, Those are stable and doing good, and there's certainly a demand for manufacturing. There's a push to get more goods out to the retailers because of the supply chain interruption with shipping containers overseas and being a shortage of those, and then not enough workers at the ports overseas and in the U.S., not enough truck drivers to drive the stuff to the place, and then being closed for multiple months at different places and not being able to manufacture to full capacity for many months. So all that's affected the cost to ship a container to the U.S., and typically a container used to run about $9,000 a year and a half, two years ago, to ship over here. just the shipping costs from China. That same container now costs $28,000 to ship to the United States just for the shipping, not counting anything that's inside the container, which would be a lot of merchandise. Industrial strong retail certainly when the pandemic started, had some weaknesses in it. And a lot of big tenants, even ones that stayed open and had plenty of money, just stopped paying rent in violation of their leases, not just with us, but pretty much across the country. And they would send letters out saying, for the foreseeable next six to 12 months, we do not anticipate paying you any rent. We would like to ask for your forgiveness of this rent. Please sign on the dotted line and return to us to forgive our rent. You know, we're a small company, so this went on for three months with basically no rent from anybody. It was a huge impact, and I'm like, if this doesn't change soon, I'm not even sure I can survive this. So we got real tough with all of our tenants, except the small mom and pops, which is a minority of our tenants. But all the national tenants, we got super tough with. We sent lawyer letters out to them, and we threatened to file suit. One of them, we actually drew up a suit as a draft and sent it to them. We worked with them on payment plans. We did not forgive any rent to the big boys. We did help two of our small tenants a little bit and forgave some rent, but the big tenants, we did not. And we've finally gotten paid from all tenants except one, and they owe us about $18,000. So it's a true blessing to be able to recapture and get that money that was thought was lost for those three months. And it impacted, you know, having money to pay people and buying equipment and that sort of thing. So it was a tough, uh, tough time for us. As a result, we've seen a lot of retail businesses shut down or close or file bankruptcy since COVID started. You know, retail is being reinvented. It's always been a game of reinvention, but it's being really reinvented now. I think we won't really see a lot of this for a couple of years, but we are seeing that. The other thing we're seeing, which was really happening before COVID, but has escalated since covid is most of your enclosed malls are closing or being redeveloped to another use, like a school or a event center in part of it, or something like that, to take place of these large anchors that have consolidated and some have went out of business. Without anchors in the mall, it hurts the small tenants, whether they're national or, or mom and pop tenants, and they can't afford to stay open if the anchors not there because the traffic gets suffocated. No traffic hardly comes to the mall when More than two anchors are closed, but even one has a big impact on sales for all businesses in a mall. And the other thing we're seeing in fast food restaurants is we're seeing a lot of them either remodel and redo their building or get out of their lease and try to build a new building somewhere, and they're they're seeking less indoor space some of them no indoor space and covered outdoor or uncovered outdoor space and curbside and so forth as permanent fixtures for that industry. The sit-down restaurant really, you know, unless it has outdoor seating, it's going to have to reinvent itself, in my opinion, until this COVID's under control and over.
0: Well, those are definitely fascinating trends that affect us all, not just business owners. I do want to point out, because I feel like You, as a commercial real estate owner and investor, people typically think, well, they have money, they have that building. But what they don't realize is you have ginormous expenses to keep up any buildings or any property that you are renting out most of the time. And you are a business owner yourself. So I just wanted to point that out that just because rent is quote, forgivable, or, you know, people think that you have money bags and you can continue to go on and on and people not pay rent. That's that's not the case. You, You need revenue coming in and your only revenue is that rental property and that source of income. So I just wanted to point that out. And I'm sure a lot of commercial real estate investors may have had to file bankruptcy because and close their buildings. And then that you know, dilapidated buildings that are out there not being used. I think there's a serious issue there that people aren't thinking about. Jason, are you seeing a trend with the way office space is being used right now as far as the big businesses and the small businesses?
1: We're seeing, particularly on the large office buildings, uh, a lot of people working from home remotely as they started doing in the pandemic. Many are still doing that. Office tenants are looking at doing away with leases or trying to work out deals with the landlords to let them off or reduce their square footage. This is pretty much across the country and lower their rental rate and so forth. The office market, I think, is going to be the most severely impacted component from covid compared to any real estate class and it's the same pretty much in a small market as a big market but you know a smaller building is more stable in a rural or mid-sized market than a large building in a large market i think we're going to see a lot of bankruptcies of office developers and there have been a number of them already and i think we're going to see a lot of banks end up getting the office buildings back through foreclosure or bankruptcies and then there's going to be distressed sales on those and your real estate investors who are entrepreneurial and have the wherewithal, they'll buy those buildings at 10 or 15 or $0.20 cents on the dollar uh, because the lender's not equipped to manage them. And that'll be something that a lot of money will be made on in the future. But they'll have to have a plan to reposition part of those buildings or have more tenants in the building, you know, that sort of thing.
0: Thank you for explaining some of the trends that you're seeing. What do you think the future effects of these trends are for business leaders and business owners?
1: One key component right now would be you need cash. You need a lot of cash and cash is king and you need to try to reduce or eliminate debt. You know, that doesn't really affect real estate, but I think that's something for all businesses to strive toward during these uncertain times. And I think there will be some startups after this COVID gets under control whenever it does, but a lot of startups. But I think right now people are sitting on the sidelines. They feel safer with their job or their, instead of opening a business or their money in the bank as a business owner and not buying assets or not buying things unless they're necessary. I know for us as a company, we're in a good cash situation, but You know, we're not buying any properties right now. We typically buy properties, leased to tenants, and, you know, that's something we try to do every year, buy at least one property. It just doesn't make sense to, even though interest rates are low, to tie your money up right now. There's just too much uncertainty and too much uncertainty with tenants and, you know, size of shopping centers, configurations. And you also got a big issue in all buildings with uh, heating and cooling. The way our heating and cooling is designed in buildings primarily in the United States is they have very little fresh air intake. And fresh air intake is something that is required if you're going to have things like COVID happening. You need that, and you need a lot of it. And then you need air purification systems, air ionizers, which is also a form of purification, uh, HEPA filters, just different things like that. And the today's heating and cooling units are not really made with any of those components. So there's other companies that have been in business, and some are newly created... And they make these equipment to put inside your commercial air conditioner units or building air conditioner units. And, you know, they claim to kill COVID and other types of viruses and bacterias. There's a restaurant over in Atlanta called Rays on the River. They, as soon as COVID happened, they revamped all their three stores and put air purifications and everything in them. And that doesn't make them 100% safe, but it makes them very safe. They spent a lot of money with that. They upgraded their outdoor seating. They put three big tents up in the back in addition to their outdoor seating. And they had an event space that was enclosed and they redone it and made it unenclosed. And so they can seat several hundred people outside at dinner where they used to could just seat about 30 people at dinner outside. And then the events building will accommodate about a thousand people and it's now open instead of enclosed. So to me, they're the only restaurant that I'm familiar with that's really went above and beyond, and they did temperature checks. I don't know if they're still doing them, I and mean, they were doing them even like February March of this year, and uh, if you had a fever, you couldn't come in there. They asked you to wait outside under the covered area or out in the parking lot, and they had gave you a pager, and they would page you, and they would ask you three health screening questions when they called your number, and if those were answered in a negative way, they would say, we, we can't let you you know, have dinner here tonight. They had very little COVID cases with their staff, and they required vaccinations early on, as soon as the vaccinations were required. And they really, to me, did a good job, better than most companies I've seen manage the crisis.
0: Thank you for those examples. So, what advice would you give business owners at this time?
1: I would say put plans on hold that's not necessary, conserve cash. Try to lower or renegotiate debt with banks to have a longer time to pay it, which would lower your payment. I think you know if you're thinking about buying a commercial building, I would hold off right now just because of the uncertainty. I feel like the housing market, even though I don't do a lot of house business, is in a bubble right now, and I think the prices we can't sustain these prices anywhere in the country, and you know people are making $100,000, hundred hundred and fifty fifty thousand dollars even on a small house in an older neighborhood. You know, just because of this surge in the housing with a low interest rate, long-term low interest rates to buy a house with, people are overpaying because of the interest rates. So what I think will happen is in about a year or two, we'll see a correction and we'll see a lot of houses plummet in value and we'll see some people potentially lose their homes because they overpaid for them. Even though their interest rate was lower, they probably bid off the maximum they could chew. So I think it's a great strategy to wait about buying a house. If you don't have a house or you have one, just sit tight. That's what I would do. You know, if you sell one and make a lot of money, you're going to in turn have to pay even more to buy one because the square footage cost to build a home now. Building materials have skyrocketed since this supply disruption. And like a sheet of plywood, three-quarter inch plywood, used to cost about $20 three years ago. Today, It was up to $110 a sheet just a few months ago. Today, it's down to $79 at Lowe's in Gadsden. So, you know, that's a huge expense. So the cost of a house is costing well over $250 a square foot. And I'm not talking about a fancy house, just an average middle-class home that's new. You know, those houses were typically trading in the $120 and under range around Birmingham and Gadsden and Northeast Alabama and Central Alabama it's just a tough thing with the house market, I think.
0: So as far as small business owners like myself, who may have a staff of one to 10 that's looking for office space, it's almost a renter's market at this time. What advice would you give business owners who are looking for office space, maybe to rent at this time? What should be their strategy?
1: Well, one of the things is I would research and find out, you know, what, even in areas you don't want to be in, you know, don't just look at two buildings in that area because you like them. Look at 15 buildings and, you know, see how much they're all renting for. And then, you know, the ones you like, try to negotiate the rent down. But also, more important strategy would be to have things like, we call it a force majeure clause in a lease. But it basically says if something that happens like a governmental strike, a governmental shutdown, a uh, nuclear bomb, so forth, That rent is forgiven during that time. Well, COVID is not defined as a force majeure in leases because we didn't have COVID. Nobody even knew what it was. We are starting to see that being defined as part of force majeure as COVID and like illnesses. So I would negotiate something, you know, with the landlord that if, you know, the government shuts the businesses down, you can cancel the lease or you can pay half rent or no rent during that time. I would also have options where I could. Maybe if you rented two floors, have an option where you could terminate the lease on one of the floors if you had to cut down on your people working and so forth, even if the COVID wasn't a concern. I would try to have maximum flexibility in everything I did. I really feel like it's better for people to rent than buy a building right now that they're going to occupy and use yourself because they have a lot of flexibility and a lot of hungry landlords out there. Landlords are going to have to get creative, even if they haven't gotten to the point yet of lowering prices most of them have. And as time goes, they'll have to continue working on that.
0: Jason, those are great insights. Thank you so much. We have a lot to listen to. I'm even thinking this is good stuff just to re-listen to, just to let it sink in, maybe take some notes on how to apply that to our businesses, especially for the future. And my takeaway is walk conservatively through the next couple of months through the next year to save your cash and perhaps rent and use that cash to maybe invest in a building later when the market is better for that so one question i asked everyone on the show is what are you reading or where are you currently finding your news
1: Uh, My primary source of news is reading the Wall Street Journal. I try to read it every day, but some days I miss it and catch up on the weekend or something. But it, to me, is the most detailed publication out there, and it just expounds into a lot of detail. And it's not just for stock brokers or stock traders or high net worth people. It's a great overall news periodical, and it has the largest circulation in the world. To me, that's good. And then, of course, I look at some online news, and I read a lot of industry magazines and industry newsletters and things like that to try to stay abreast in the commercial real estate market. Mitzi, I have one more thing I'd like to expound on if I could.
0: Please go ahead.
1: I just wanted to give people some examples. I go to High Point, North Carolina, usually about once every year and a half to the wholesale furniture show. And typically there's 70,000 people that attend that from 60 countries and they have a market in typically in April and one in October, and people, you know, furniture stores and interior designers and real estate developers buy their furniture there, and, you know, they get it wholesale. About 15 years ago, most all furniture was made in the United States and was relatively high quality. They decided it was cheaper to off-source the furniture out of this country. So the quality and the craftsmanship went down as soon as that happened, and even with your best brands and most expensive brands, their quality went down. So about every piece of wood furniture you see, or even if it looks like wood and it's not wood, all that's made in Vietnam, the Philippines, or China, or somewhere like that. They're not made in Britain or the U.S. or anything like that. Sofas and chairs and so forth, the leathers usually come from overseas, and the cloth and the frame comes from overseas. But typically, that gets put together in an upholstery plant in the U.S. So that's still here, and the quality of that's still good. But typically on upholstery orders, uh, you would see about a 10-week period when you ordered them before you got them, 8 to 10 weeks. Today, upholstery manufacturers are quoting 32 weeks. Part of that's because of a foam shortage in Texas, which was caused by the flooding and some of the other issues in Texas, the shutdown of a main plant. There's only a few of them in the country that make foam for the chairs. The other thing that we've seen is like a company that produces their wood furniture overseas, we've seen that industry go from about a six to nine-month lead time to a 12 to 15-month lead time. So that's a long time for a furniture store to have to wait on furniture. And right now, if you go in any good or bad furniture store in Birmingham, Gadsden, or anywhere else in the southeast, You're going to see bare shelves. You're going to see a lot of, uh, they may have carried mostly higher lines, and you're going to see a lot of junk, uh, what I call low-end junk in there, just to fill space because they can't get enough of the type of product they sell. You know, the container shipping is killing these things. My furniture wholesalers that we're set up with to buy from, about 12 of them, uh, most of them have had six to nine price increases since COVID began, and I don't see an end in sight because the shipping containers are such an issue. Even if everything else gets back to normal, I think it's going to take three to four years for the inflation in retail goods to slow down, which will probably cause a chain reaction of inflation. You know, the other thing we're seeing, like in the retail fireworks business, I was in that business as Mitzi mentioned early on, and I mentioned that business. We talked about how much it costs just for the shipping of a container, but also because of the shutdowns in the in China, the fireworks industry couldn't get enough fireworks. In the last year, to supply the stores that wanted to sell them. So, a lot of products were out. Like my aunt has a store in Oniana, Alabama. She had no firecrackers or Roman candles this year. I was in the business 20 years and I've never not had any firecrackers or Roman candles. So, you know, that's just an example. Also, what happened with the fireworks business, it did very well during this COVID downturn because the cities quit doing fireworks shows and large public gatherings and people started buying them again to shoot theirself. So uh, we fireworks business has more than doubled on the retail side in sales the last two years. And I don't expect that to always be the case, but I think it will be for the next year or two. I just wanted to talk about those industries and how they kind of compare to the real estate industry.
0: I think those are great examples. And I think a lot of people, the average consumer, they're seeing that, but they're not really understanding what's going on. You know, there's a lot <laughs> of supply chain logistic issues that are happening behind the scenes in a lot of industries. Probably every industry because of that is struggling behind the scenes, but that's really not known. And that's one of the reasons for this podcast is to really help business owners in particular understand the dynamics that have happened since the COVID paradigm shift has hit us and the the lockdown and how that has affected our local world and our global world. So is there anything else, Jason, you'd like to share?
1: Uh, One more thing, before COVID really hit here in the U.S., before we had any known cases, about a month before that, I started trying to stockpile cleaning supplies and aspirin and cough medicine and just different things like that, hand sanitizers and things. I mean, I filled my garage up. I spent like $5,000 on stuff. I had so many people workers that worked for me and contractors and just friends just make a lot of make fun of me a lot but what they didn't know is I had read a report by Procter and Gamble that came out about 4 months before COVID had hit the US and it was already affecting some regions like China bad but it said that because of that and there was also a shortage of shipping containers which had nothing to do with COVID they were saying that about a third of their goods would be in short supply, if even available. You know, they make 60,000 products, Procter & Gamble does, or they own various companies that are household names, and all those companies make together 60,000 products, roughly. So if a third of those are out, that's 20,000 products. I think everybody's experienced the toilet paper and paper towels and so forth, and not been able to find hand sanitizer for a year or nine months and all. So... um that's just an example. That's sort of, I think, Procter & Gamble sensed it early on before anybody else did. But that was a tale of what's going to happen in the future.
0: Do you think because of that, we are having more businesses open up to fill that need? Or do you think they're just kind of just trying to get by and get back to normal in two to three years when things are a little bit more settled down?
1: Everybody I know in retail that's having trouble getting certain goods are are basically trying to stockpile those. You know, we've always had this just-in-time inventory that business college professors talk about, which means you try not to carry much inventory and you get it to arrive just before you need it. And that's been the way the country's been going for 20 years. Well, now you see a shift in that and people that own businesses are buying warehouses or renting warehouses and putting extra stock in them that may get them by for two years of certain items, not everything they sell. The furniture industry is one example. People are ordering huge amounts of furniture, and they know they may be waiting a year to get it, but they're going to have three years' worth come in if they have the money in the warehouse space.
0: Someone was telling me that even one of the large housing, I guess, I'm not sure if it was Lowe's or Home Depot, has kind of cut out the middleman as far as logistics, and they're going over to China and setting up shop to be able to do their own logistics. Have you heard anything about that?
1: Uh, no, I have not. I just—that's not really something that I've heard anything about. But that sounds plausible.
0: I'll look more into that before I say one or the other.
1: I do know that Home Depot made a bid for a bunch of shipping containers where they would actually own them. Like they made a, say, a shipping container would sell for, let's just say, twenty thousand dollars. Well, they put an order in for thirty thousand dollars to get the people that have the shipping containers to sell them to them. And there were several other large companies. I think Walmart was one that did that. And they've gotten criticized a lot, but I mean, really all they're doing is watching out for their business, just like a small business owner would do.
0: Yeah, I think the big companies are you know, going to have to take that into their own hands if they can't get what they need. So all very interesting, and uh, we'll have to have you back in a couple of months, maybe in about six months, to see what else has changed since September of 2021. Thank you, Jason, so much for being right. on our show. And thank um, you. It
1: was my pleasure.
0: And have a great day.
1: Thank you. YouTube.
0: Thanks for joining us here on So What Has Changed by Mitzi Jane Media. We hope you can join us next week for another episode. If you like what you hear and you'd like to support the podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review.